0: Tonight
2: on The Readout.
3: I think when you read the Wall Street Journal, you read the New York Post, you sit back and listen to a lot of economists. They'll say this is the strongest debt ceiling we ever had.
4: This is a disaster. It is a it is an entire capitulation. Kevin McCarthy is emasculating himself and the Republican majority.
2: Masculating. Well, if the Republican chaos caucus is this mad about the debt ceiling deal, you know President Biden got a good result. Also tonight, new reporting on the growing bad blood among Trump's lawyers, including that one of them may have been misled about where Trump was hiding classified documents. And presidential candidate and toy-sized Mussolini, Ron DeSantis, unveils his authoritarian manifesto vowing to destroy leftism and wokeism. So tell us how you're going to do that, Ron. We begin tonight with a debt ceiling deal and the wrath of the pro-default caucus. I am sure you've heard by now that after marathon talks over the weekend, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached an agreement on a deal to suspend the debt ceiling. Suspend, not raise. That's important. And I will get back to that in a minute. The House is expected to vote on the bill tomorrow. The House Rules Committee met today to vote on whether it will make it to the floor, the first procedural hurdle for the deal. But if you want to know whether the deal itself is any good, take a listen to who's mad about it the far right House Freedom Caucus. This deal fails,
5: fails completely. And that's why these members and others will be absolutely opposed to the deal, and we will do everything in our power to stop it. It'll be very clear not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal.
0: In short, Tomorrow's bill is a bunch of fake news. We're not going to default. We're going to choose. they're going to say
6: this. Let's call their bluff on it. The best deal is no deal.
2: <laughs> now it is important to note those members of the House Freedom Caucus were never going to vote for the debt deal. They said so in advance. It doesn't you know punch poor people in the face enough like their bill. So it was a no from the jump. In fact. One of those members, Texas's lynching glorifier, Chip Roy, vowed to kill it in the House Rules Committee, calling it a, quote, turd sandwich. The deal doesn't raise the debt limit by a fixed amount. It actually just suspends it until 2025, meaning the Treasury Department can borrow whatever it needs to pay our national bills. And in true Republican Scooby-Doo villain fashion, North Carolina's Dan Bishop said the quiet part way loud (laughs) about that.
7: It removes the issue from the national conversation during the presidential election to come. How could you more successfully kneecap any Republican president than to take that issue out of his or her hands?
2: Okay, again, these people said in advance that they wouldn't vote for any deal. So now that they got the nothing that you're entitled to when you promise not to vote for anything, they're just be honest about why. Bishop also became the first Republican to openly call for Speaker Kevin McCarthy's job over the agreement. He told Politico, the one-person motion to vacate should absolutely be on the table to oust McCarthy. It has to happen, he said. That was also always going to happen (laughs) after Kevin McCarthy sold his soul to the pro-default caucus to get the 15 votes that he needed to grasp the Speaker's gavel. But while Kevin, you know, isn't exactly the brightest light in the candelabra, If he has made this deal with President Biden, it stands to reason that he also made a deal with enough Republicans and Democrats to vote for it and for him in a no-confidence vote. And because it's a negotiated deal, not everyone got everything they wanted. But there are a lot of clear wins for President Biden. Republicans will call new work requirements a victory, even though work requirements for SNAP food aid are currently federal law for people under 50 with no dependents. The deal extends the age from 49 to 54, but veterans and the homeless are exempted from the new work requirements, which the White House says would likely offset the increased age limits, leaving the number of adults subject to the work requirements unchanged. Republicans are also crowing that the deal cuts spending by limiting non-defense spending. But what they actually got is spending that will remain roughly flat for the next two years. And they can go home and tout increased defense spending of a whopping $866 billion, which was already President Biden's budget request. And Republicans can tell their mean-spirited little base that, you know, they didn't raise the debt limit because suspend means it just went away like the wind. But cry more, MAGA Republicans, because the reality is you didn't get what you wanted, but everyone had to give a little. And that is how deals and adulting work. And it turns out President Biden is really, really good at this. If you're old enough to remember 2011, the first time Republicans used the threat of default to hold our economy hostage under President Barack Obama and got the U.S. its first credit downgrade in the process, that deal to save us from default was brokered by, drumroll, none other than Vice President Joe Biden. And while then-Speaker John Boehner portrayed it as an own-the-libs-win-for-Republicans, at the time, officials said Boehner ultimately didn't get much. Joining me now is David Plouffe, former Obama campaign manager and MSNBC political analyst, and Sahil Kapoor— NBC News senior national political reporter. Um, Let's start with what's in this deal. I'm just going to put it up. Suspends the debt ceiling for two years, meaning it will not be an issue, as Republican Scooby Doo villain uh, admitted. Caps spending for two years at 2023 levels. Claws back unspent COVID funds, meaning money that's just sitting there gets clawed back. Restarts student loan payments. Adds these work requirements, except veterans, the homeless, and people aging out of foster care. It cuts the IRS's budget. And it does permit some energy, uh, uh, sort of permitting for energy and fully funds veterans medical care. What are Democrats and the Republicans who actually were in play to actually vote for this, actually saying about this style?
7: Well, Joy, the spending cuts are too modest for some House Freedom Caucus Republicans. This was always going to be the case. They were barely satisfied with a much more aggressive bill that House Republicans passed on a party-line basis. They were never going to be on board for a compromise. They were always going to vote no. The question uh, for Kevin McCarthy, for the speaker, was can he minimize those losses and get the vast majority of his Republican conference on board? We will find out what the answer to that is. But so far, so good for him. His leadership team is projecting confidence. A lot of members outside the Freedom Caucus we spoke to uh, also say they're on board with this. They're trying to focus on what's in the bill. Republicans who are focusing on what's in the bill uh, you know, are more supportive of it, and the House Republicans who are su- uh, focusing on what's not in the bill, All these steeper cuts that they wanted are voting against it. We'll see where the numbers break down tomorrow, Joy, but we know uh, House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries has said he expects 150 Republicans to support it. That is two-thirds of the conference. Democrats do not want to carry this over the line themselves. This was a deal that, of course, they were not in the room for. It was House Republican leaders and the White House in the room. They believe it's the job of the House majority to carry it over the line. Progressives have also expressed some concerns with this, but at the end of the day, Joy, I think Democrats have so much invested in this economically. They want to prevent a catastrophic uh, default. And politically, they're invested in President Biden's success. They need him to be successful in order for themselves to be successful. And they're not going to let this fail. Uh, This bill is in decent shape to pass the House. And then it goes over to the Senate with just about five days or so if it passes tomorrow before that crucial deadline.
2: So, so these are the members of the, of the Rules Committee. They're trying to sort of hold it up in the Rules Committee. Uh, Thomas Massey, who's indicated he's going to vote for it, Ralph Norman, Chip Roy, um, those are the sort of problem members, um, Sahil. Any of those members seem like they're going to jump ship and, and prevent it from getting out of rules.
7: Well, right now, the Rules Committee has nine Republicans and four Democrats. So let's just keep the Democrats aside for one moment and see if seven out of those nine Republicans vote for it. That is a majority. Thomas Massey appears to be a yes And there are uh, six other McCarthy allies whose votes were never really in question. So this bill is in good shape to get out of the Rules Committee, whether or not Democrats vote uh, for it. The, The tradition around here is that typically the majority party has to carry these procedural votes in committee. So even though a lot of Democrats are going to vote for it on the floor of the House, some of them might vote against the procedural rule to go forward. But... You know, Chip Roy and, and Ralph Norman are also on the Rules Committee. They yeah. are, are very critical of this bill. They can vote against it and it still uh, would have uh, the votes to pass just on Republican strength, Joy.
2: Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm going to say so what, David Pluff, as I come over to you. If you literally say I will never vote for anything, there's nothing that you could put in a bill that I will ever vote for. You're literally iced out of the conversation. So that was a dumb strategy to begin with. But I, I do want to go to this sort of the, the sort of have it both ways thing. So Nancy Mays, this was her quote. She said uh, she doesn't like the bill either. She says she's not going to vote for it. She goes back and forth between being a normie and a MAGA. She says, I'm voting no on the debt ceiling debacle because playing the D.C. game isn't worth selling out our kids and grandkids. Republicans got outsmarted by a president who can't find his pants. So let's just say, let's just say she's right. Let's just pretend, you know Biden, so you know he can find his pants. Let's say he didn't. And he's pantsless in the White House right now, doesn't know where they're at. He still beat them. What does that say about them? If they believe that he is mentally incontinent, but he's still beating them at this game, that means to me that they are completely irrelevant and they don't know what they're doing. They're literally insulting themselves, trying to insult him. He beat them again. Your thoughts, David Bluff?
8: Well,
4: they're just not serious about governing most of them. Uh, And listen, Biden, I was in the rooms with him in 2011 when he was talking to McConnell and Boehner and Democrats. Uh, because we got very close to defaulting back then. So I think, listen, this is really not on the level. So the people who are criticizing, we're never going to vote for it. This isn't the type of thing that's going to get 300 votes in the House. It'll get 218, 220, 222. McCarthy and Jeffries probably have all this wired, no matter what press releases and and outbursts happen. Uh, And at the end of the day, the big thing, the specifics matter, but the big thing is the country's not going to default. (laughs) Which is most importantly uh, from an economic and substance standpoint, sure. this is already a pretty weak economy, and we could head into a severe recession, if not a an depression. Uh, and then politically, uh, the truth is the House Republicans have a very narrow majority. It's under threat. I'm sure most of the vulnerable Republicans in the House did not want to fall. Obviously, the White House doesn't want to fall. Senate, you know, members who are in tough races don't want to fall. So the, the big thing to me is the substance before the politics, which is and that's what scared me all along, As there's too many Republicans. Who believe default, they either don't believe it's actually a default. It's not real. It's fake. It's like right. a government shutdown. And of course, it, those two things cannot be further from each other. So the good news is now, of course, we're going to have this debate again in 25 and 27. And at some point, we got to stop having this ridiculous debate and handle this like every American family or business does, which is we pay the bills that we rack up without yeah. any extra drama or debate. But I think that's where we're heading. And Biden, listen, I think he knew that the, this economy could not withstand a shock like a default, even if it was a temporary one. Uh, and he had to make some concessions uh, to make sure that didn't happen. I think there were smart concessions. But once again, he shows that he's kind of a master of the inside game.
2: You know, I have to say, I disagree with the idea of negotiating with them at all, right? I, because I, I, Biden, when he said, I think he was absolutely right. The, the the debt limit and the budget are two very separate things, and I don't think it should be up for a debate at all. But if someone is going to go in and play this game—Biden is the most underestimated politician in Washington. He's been doing this since he was 29 years old. He knows what he's doing, and I think people underestimate him. There is reporting in Politico that centrist Dems have already plotted and are already planned to back McCarthy if there's a no confidence vote. So that is already in place that these screaming memes can say whatever they want. McCarthy is going to survive this. The as you said, the economy is going to survive this. But David, isn't the most important thing here that Republicans signaled, including the head of the RNC, that they would like a default and the catastrophic recession that would follow because they think that would help them politically in 2024. But somebody like Thomas Massey in a middle class district in Kentucky can't afford that. And so in the end, sanity ruling. It is a win for Biden. I don't see how you play it any other way or how you read it any other way.
4: Well, firstly, it's a win for the country. And, you know, Joe Biden still believes in that. And also, I know it's not in style these days, but he believes that he's there to govern, not just engage in political positioning. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he with Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, have prevented the worst. This economy, again, is not that strong as it is. Uh, And it could not withstand this kind of shock. So, at the end of the day, the reason I think Joe Biden is so successful in these moments is one, he's a good listener. He actually listens to people. Uh, He will trade ideas and paper and numbers back and forth. I think people understand they can trust him, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, And he's very focused on what what are we actually trying to do here, Uh, knowing that he's going to get some criticism as he is. Uh, But you've got to understand what's your principle. And the principle is we work in default. It's very frustrating that he had to negotiate. But that's the world we live in. And There's a lot of people in the other party who would gladly drive this economy completely off the cliff, even though it would hurt to your point, Joy. I think some more vulnerable House Republicans. Um, but, you know, they're appealing to Fox News. They're appealing to their loudest voices who never want to work with a Democrat on anything, who don't believe in reality, who don't believe in Fox. Again, they, they, they don't even understand what default would um You know, willful ignorance. Uh, And so, but again, I think Biden shows again that he puts the country first, he puts his economy first, but he's got real skill in moments like this.
2: Uh, Let me read, I'm just going to read to you uh, what uh, the big Ngooz, Joe Ngooz from from Colorado, he said the following. He said the president put forward a budget months ago. Um, Do you know when the president submitted his budget? He was asked another member, he said, I don't remember, it was March 9th. Uh, it was February 1st. Um, and, you know, when they put a budget together, they didn't. <laughs> like, literally, the only person that was actually doing serious governing was Joe Biden. And I have to give Kevin McCarthy credit. He, you know, he actually came to the table. Uh, last question to you, Sahil. This very quickly. Um, this goes through without a hitch, right? They'd vote through tomorrow. That's the thinking. Well,
7: It is likely to pass the House Rules Committee today. And yes, the expectation, unless something, unless the center suddenly falls out in the Republican Conference, it is likely to pass uh, the House of Representatives. And that vote is uh, expected tomorrow, Joy. I do think that. 2011 analogy is significant here, and I think David Plouffe will remember this, that was a much, much bigger deal. There were $2 trillion in cuts that ultimately nobody really wanted. They undid them. This is a more modest deal at this point, and that's President Biden's off-ramp. He says this was not a debt-limit negotiation. To him, this was a budget negotiation, something that had to happen later in the year anyway, and if you look at this deal, it's hard to see this as anything other than a normal, what would have been a budget negotiation regardless of the debt-limit situation, Joy.
2: And meanwhile, the people who are screaming about it were never going to vote for it, so they were never seriously negotiating at all, We're not in the room at all, and now they're going to go scream on TV and on Fox News because that actually, in their mind, is their job, to yell and scream on conservative media, not to actually govern. Hire people for these jobs who actually govern for you, not who scream on television. David Plouffe and Saha Kapoor, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, you're just not serious. New reporting on Trump's hoard of classified documents raises new questions about where they were stashed and why Trump took them in the first place. The Readout plays after this.
6: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
2: When FBI agents showed up at Mar-a-Lago last June in response to a grand jury subpoena, the agents were given 38 classified documents and a signed statement that a, quote, diligent search was conducted and that all classified documents that Donald Trump took from the White House Had been turned over. That turned out to be far from the truth. And the FBI returned just two months later with a warrant and retrieved more than 100 additional classified documents. Some of the most highly classified items were found inside Trump's personal office. New reporting from The Guardian indicates that Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran, who conducted the initial diligent search, told a federal grand jury that he had actually been told to steer clear of Trump's office and to only search a storage room according to two people familiar with the matter. The Guardian adds that it was not clear who waved Corcoran off from searching elsewhere at Mar-a-Lago, Trump himself or Trump employees. But it suggests Corcoran was materially misled, as special counsel Jack Smith examines whether the incomplete search was actually a ploy by Trump to retain classified documents. It was just a few months ago that Corcoran testified in front of the federal grand jury investigating all of this under a court order. The Guardian also reports that according to his own notes that were shared with the grand jury, Corcoran warned Trump that he could not keep any classified documents after he was subpoenaed for their return. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, MSNBC legal analyst, former FBI general counsel and former senior member of the Mueller probe. Always great to talk to you, Andrew. So let's start with this because— That says obstruction to me, right, that someone is telling Evan Corcoran, well, don't look anywhere but just in this storehouse. So that feels like an obstruction thing. But explain to us, for those who don't know, how can somebody's lawyer testify to those things in court about their own
3: client? Sure, well, yeah, you're absolutely right that this does uh, smell a lot like obstruction. The reason that the lawyer can testify is because the then chief judge in d c, washington, d c ruled in favor of the government. That uh, with respect to the crime fraud exception, and that is a really it's it's not that hard to understand. What it basically says is, if you're a client, and you try to use your lawyer to commit a crime, then you can't also say there's attorney client privilege. So the judge pierced through that and found by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, that a crime had been committed. And so that's why you have Mr. Corcoran being able to testify and his notes being required to be turned over. Um, And I think the one way to think about what is, I think, potentially quite explosive testimony is basically tampering with a crime scene. Imagine after the police come and put tape around a particular location, um, Donald Trump or uh, Mr. Nauda, but somebody, uh, took the smoking gun out of the crime scene and then said, oh, police, come look at the crime scene. But they actually had removed the evidence. And that is clearly what Jack Smith is investigating. And, it, and the big open issue in the reporting from The Guardian is... Who told Mr. Corcoran uh, that he should only look in the storage locker? And that's where it is just beyond the pale to me that somebody who used to be a federal uh, prosecutor would take that from some underling, knowing that your client is Donald Trump, knowing that he is truth challenge, you would really want to hear that from somebody quite reputable, meaning you're, you know, in terms of somebody with firsthand knowledge um, yeah. before you would make a representation to the government that you had done, as you pointed out, a diligent search.
2: And Mr. Nauda, of course, is Walt Nauda, and that is uh, Donald Trump's valet, uh, who might have been moving boxes uh, at some point before this search, which is very sketchy. Speaking of lawyers, I want to read you my favorite line from this Daily Beast reporting about all of the lawyers who are now apparently at loggerheads with each other, wondering if any of them are snitches, which is why I wanted to ask you about that crime fraud exception, because, you know, MAGA means making attorneys get attorneys, and now <coughs> apparently they're fighting— <laughs> Apparently the lawyer who the other lawyers distrust the most is of course Boris Epstein. Folks will remember him from frequently appearing on MSNBC dayside sometimes opposite myself. And here is the quote. Boris pissed off most pissed off all the Florida lawyers. People are dropping like flies. Everybody hates him. He's a toxic loser. He's a complete psycho and a second person who could barely contain the anger while discussing the matter. He's got daddy issues and Trump is his daddy. Uh, that sounds to me like there's at least one lawyer. He's technically a lawyer that seems to be willing to guard Trump from his own lawyers. Have you ever heard of anything like that?
3: Well, you know, what it's to me when I read uh, that reporting, it reminded me of the way Donald Trump ran the executive branch. In other words, think about the number of people who were fired or resigned and all of the infighting in his own administration where we went through such an array of people. So clearly he is just not good at building a loyal team and My word, at this point, that's exactly what he needs. When you are, you know, in a— a situation like this where you could be facing two, three, four indictments, the lawyers have to be working as a well-oiled machine. And unfortunately, you know, for Donald Trump, and maybe fortunately for those of us who think that accountability has been too long in coming, you know, he is not capable of building that kind of sort of loyalty where, he, where people work well together and are communicating well together. And having been on a lot of high profile cases, it is necessary to have complete trust and faith in your colleagues because that's the only way to to work on a case like that.
2: Particularly when there are multiple potential indictments going on. I mean, in New York, you now have tapes. In that case, you also have the uh, the, the attorney general's case in New York. He's got so many cases. If their lawyers, if his lawyers are working together, and he's an awful client, it's not looking good. Uh, Andrew Weisman, I'll just say it's not. That's my legal term. It's not looking good. <laughs> Andrew Weisman, thank you as always. You're Still welcome. Still ahead. Cheers. Still ahead. Just another holiday weekend in America, packed with mass shootings, deadly shootouts, and accidental shootings. Just Just the totally normal activities of our well-regulated militia. We'll be right back.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: Because of the
2: stupefying number of guns we have in this country, more than 400 million in civilian hands, Americans are at risk of being shot pretty much everywhere we go. And you can now add the beach to the list, with nine people wounded last night, including a one-year-old when a fight broke out on a crowded beach boardwalk in Hollywood, Florida. It's a terrifying scene to watch, with video showing beach patrons running for their lives. But that's the way we live now always having to be prepared to run for our lives. That was just one of many shootings across the country this Memorial Day weekend, leaving at least 16 people dead and dozens injured. And that's not even worse than normal, with the U.S. averaging about 57 gun-related homicides per day. In addition to the Florida shooting, we saw many arguments this weekend that led to gunfire, including in Baltimore at a restaurant in Garden Grove, California, between rival motorcycle gangs in New Mexico and a gas station owner who shot and killed a 14-year-old black boy he incorrectly thought was trying to steal a bottle of water. And last week in Charlotte, an argument between a bus driver and a passenger turned into a literal shootout. People are dying in accidental shootings, too, including two recent incidents that killed toddlers in Florida. This is just how we live now and how we die. And yet there are people who think more guns is the answer. Pile them in. Join me now is Angela Farrell Zabala, executive director of Moms Demand Action, the grassroots arm of Everytown for Gun Safety. I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, 360 plus shootings just in the last 72 hours, 263 mass shootings so far in 2023. This is an insane way to live.
8: This is absolutely insane. You you just gave that number. How many days are in the year? 365. So we have more mass shootings than days in the year so far. And that doesn't even tally or count our daily gun violence that doesn't often make the news. This is absolutely, shouldn't be normal. It doesn't have to be normal. It's not inevitable, but it's infuriating. I will say that what we're seeing is these extremist lawmakers that are beholden to a gun lobby that are doing the same vicious cycle. We hear about them loosening gun laws, And then there's a tragedy. And then we hear empty thoughts and prayers, and we're back again to square one. Yeah. Um, But I will say, Joy, there is lots of work being done across the country, and this is why elections matter, because when you elect gun sense champions, we Mm -hmm. can see progress, and we see that happening across many states in this country now.
2: Guns are now the leading cause of death for children ages 1 to 18. That is shocking, right? And it's 19 percent, one in five children who die in this country and and don't get to grow up, they die by guns. The types of gun deaths in this country, suicides, 54 percent are suicides, 43 percent are murder, 3 percent are accidents and other things— And yet there is no solution being offered to us other than more guns. I think about Florida. Let's do Florida for a second. Hollywood, Florida. I lived near there for a very long time. I lived in South Florida. That's a vacation destination. Is what's going to change this to finally see European and other international visitors stop coming here? Because I don't see how anyone in Europe, anyone overseas could possibly want to vacation in Florida or any other, particularly red state. But really in this country, because you could get shot. That's not true in Italy or France or England or anywhere else.
8: That's right. Our peer nations, we are the ones that have this problem. And oftentimes we'll hear things like mental health and everything else. We are not the only country that faces that. But yet we have this. This is a uniquely American problem. But I will say a rising number of Americans see this as a public health crisis that needs to be addressed. And that's why we're going to continue to roll up our sleeves and meet you at ballot boxes and meet you at state houses, because we know that strong gun laws save lives
2: you know the thing is is that we're typically we, we typically and we call on on you all to talk about mass shootings but at this point because so many people have guns every dispute that would normally That's be right. a fist fight or even a knife fight or even a slap fight it becomes a gunfight we're talking about a guy who wanted to get off on a different stop on a bus and the driver getting in a shootout because they have guns we're talking about people getting in an altercation that would have been verbal in Hollywood Beach and then they have guns so they start shooting. People are literally using guns as a substitute for even arguing. That's how, how rampant it is. Yes. How do we, what do we do about that? Well, look, the unfettered access
8: to guns is exactly, again, gun lobby and extremist lawmakers that are beholden to them. The way we do this is we pass strong gun laws. And one thing I will say, because this can be really bleak joy. We were talking about this before we went on. But there is a lot of work being done across many states where we have gun sense trifectas and gun sense champions. Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. Is Maryland, right. Illinois, Colorado. Yeah. The list goes on. Minnesota. So we're going to continue to do that. I think, again, this is why elections matter. This is why you have to elect people that are going to have the best interests of the American people. And they
2: want strong gun laws. Are we going to have to at some point go the level of of an Australian that literally did a a massive assault weapons ban and buyback? Or, you know, we've got a big protest in Colorado that's like, let's revisit that damn Second Amendment because people are misinterpreting it to say, you know, I want a flamethrower. I can have it. That's how extreme these people are at this stage. Are they going to be shooting planes out? Out of the sky by accident. Like, I don't know where it ends because we're getting close to people saying, I need to have a machine gun for my hunting pleasure. It's
8: ridiculous. Right. Well, we know 11 states have already enacted um, assault weapons bans, and we'd love to have, see it federally, a reinstatement of the assault weapons ban. It worked before and it can mm-hmm. work again. Uh, but I do say, even with all of this, we should not be getting, a, uh, uh, not thinking about getting up in rolling up our sleeves and, and yeah. getting to work on this because, you know, we can't stay on the sidelines. It's mm-hmm. going to take all of us. And it's been a decade that we've been doing this at Moms Demand Action, Students Demand Action. Uh, but you think about the opposition and the gun lobby has been at this for
2: decades. So yeah. there's be- work to be done. People should not be afraid to go to the beach, go to a movie, go to a parade. But at this point, I mean, I, the idea we were just talking earlier about going to the movies. I don't know. I don't know if I would feel comfortable. I would be nervous. Uh, Angela Farrell Zavala, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for all the work thank that you. you do. Coming up, Ron DeSantis kicks off his presidential campaign by laying out what he doesn't want America to look like. What he does want is easy to imagine, and it's a freaking nightmare. More next.
7: Everyone knows if I'm the nominee, I will beat Biden uh, and I will serve two terms and I will be able to uh, destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology on the dustbin of history.
2: That was Ron DeSantis on Memorial Day with a big old warship in the background, assuring Americans that as your two-term president, he will destroy leftism and wokeism. Okay, let's unpack that because that sure sounds like a massive federal overhaul of American life. And we already have a good sense of what that would look like. In the most recent Florida legislative session, DeSantis and his minions waged a war on women's reproductive rights. He's banned books. He greenlit draconian restrictions on speech in schools. He's pushed a ban on black history, hurled governmental power at individual businesses to punish them for speech he didn't like, and made guns easier to access. That's what he's done and what he wants to do to the rest of this country, per his own words, make America Florida. Contrast that with Minnesota's Democratic Governor Tim Walz, a man who is not running for president. In his state's most recent legislative session, he moved to get families paid family and medical leave, increased funding for free school lunches for kids, passed tax credits to low-income families, strengthened gun laws, protected reproductive rights, and moved to make housing more affordable. None of that governing stuff is apparently appealing to DeSantis, even though Florida is in desperate need of the same help. Have you seen how much it costs to rent a place in Florida? What it costs to insure your home? The logical implication of DeSantis' statement about destroying wokeism is that if he's elected president, the federal government would ignore your material and economic needs and instead would micromanage every aspect of your life. So I guess DeSantis, the DeSantis administration, would move to replace the boards of every one of the approximately 6,000 public universities in this country that he thinks are too woke, like he did to New College in Florida. And he's gonna need some de facto morality police to monitor what you read and ban books in America's 90,000-odd public schools. President DeSantis would ban artistic freedom of speech, of course, and wield the federal government like a sledgehammer against businesses who do anything that displeases him and other members of the far right. A national six-week abortion ban? Make America Florida, am I right? You wanna control your body anymore, ladies? Nah, Chairman, sorry, President DeSantis is gonna do that. And there is a model for what this little dictator in the making wants to do. Just look at China, Cuba, North Korea, Afghanistan, or Iran, where the government censors the media, or force feeds a strict conservative religious ideology to children in schools, deploys morality police to make sure you're wearing what they want, learning what they want, doing what they want. That model also happens to have a name, and it's called totalitarianism, the political concept that the citizen should totally be subject to an absolute state authority. DeSantis's proposal would also require a massive, multi-trillion-dollar federal investment in a humongous bureaucracy to control and squash unwanted wokeness. Let me guess, who get Mexico to pay for it? Freedom from big government used to be a pretty basic Republican principle, but I guess that went out the window along with respect for democracy. That hasn't stopped other states from adopting the ideas of DeSantis-Stan. That doesn't make it a winning strategy. More on that next.
7: There may be some differences with me and Donald Trump. And I think that those differences uh, redound to my benefit in a place like Iowa. I mean, for example, you know, he's taken the side of Disney uh, in our fight down here in Florida. I'm standing for parents. I'm standing for children. And I think a multi-billion-dollar uh, company that sexualizes children is not consistent with the values of Florida or the values of a place like Iowa.
2: Ah, yes, what you just witnessed was the brilliant political strategy of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis trying to differentiate himself from his twice-impeached, one-term Florida constituent and political sugar daddy, Donald Trump. I guess at least I didn't try to overthrow the government. It was just too easy. Attacking the biggest business and jobs provider in your state seems like a smarter move. Here's the thing. Not even Trump is dumb enough to go after America's most popular family entertainment provider. Just to put this stupid Disney squabble into perspective, while DeSantis was whining about Disney, the company debuted a live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, starring Halle Bailey, a black mermaid, Pause for the collective gasp of MAGA snowflakes. And guess what? It was the fifth biggest Memorial Day weekend opening of all time. <laughs> so while DeSantis and his stands are clutching their pearls, ah, Disney is clutching their coins to the tune of $118 million in four days. Fun fact. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are not just MAGA snowflake trigger words. They're good business. Joining me now is Stephanie Rule, NBC News senior business correspondent and the host of The 11th Hour on MSNBC. And Tim Miller, writer at large at The Bulwark and MSNBC political analyst. Stephanie, I am going to do the thing where I take one of our conversations that we have off air and put it on air. I, it is so insane to me. To, for the, for Ron DeSantis and friends to go after woke businesses as if these companies are a bunch of liberals sitting around a table. They like money. They really like money. And they understand that that generation of Gen Z and younger are majority non white already. There are a lot of brown and mixed race kids and they want to sell them dollies. And so they make a brown mermaid to sell them dollies. The end. Your thoughts?
9: A hundred percent. And while this sort of anti-woke movement, right, the people bullying Bud Light or bullying Target might be loud, it's a small number of people. But why, where it's very dangerous, Joy, is if companies, and we're seeing them start to do it, pull back, right? We're yes. seeing it from Target. We're seeing Bud Light, you know, Anheuser-Busch feeling regret over this. That's dangerous. Because it was just a few years ago, Joy, that it was businesses who are leading the way on a lot of these initiatives. And now they're saying, I don't want to get involved in identity politics. They're actually pointing to Disney. And while Disney and Bob Iger might be right, you'll be hard-pressed to find another Fortune 500 CEO right now to say, I want to get in the big fights Bob Iger are getting in. They don't. So they're retreating. And when they retreat, that ends up being a win for these extreme groups, because the extreme groups are saying, look, corporate America is listening to us. They're not. They're just saying, I don't want to be in an identity politics war zone.
2: And the thing is, Tim, is that they've admitted that they just want to pick a couple companies or pick a company, target them, use TikTok and other social media to target them. They... Somebody please break it to them that Walmart also has the the Pride stuff inside of their stores as well. Chick-fil-A has a DEI office, just like every other company. Comcast has one, too. Every company has them because they want to recruit. They want to do well. Sometimes they're pinkwashing by doing a lot of the LGBT stuff. Let's just be clear. Their their, their, their policies aren't very woke, but they want to have these younger people come through. Talk about the actual danger, though, because what they're doing is they are— sort of creating this army of Karens who go in and attack Target employees.
5: Uh, that's right, Joy, and I do have to say uh, first, uh, my daughter uh, went to see the Black Little Mermaid movie and got the dolly, so chit-chit, congrats Bob Iger, you got my cash already on this there one. You go. I, I think that's there been the, the normal response to this uh, based on the numbers over the weekend. Here's the danger, right? It's not really political because I think in a lot of ways Ron DeSantis is hurting himself politically. With yes. this. It feels weird, it comes off as strange. He talks about sexualizing, how Disney sexualizing kids. What is he even talking about? I, I would love for a reporter <laughs> or oh to ask Ron DeSantis what specific scene in a Disney movie he found so offensive and so sexual. I, you know, I was, I was watching the, it was the princess and the frog when they kissed the <laughs> frog that happened a long time ago. So anyway, the, 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 to your question, the actual danger here though, is these kind of one-off rad, the radicalization of individuals, you know, and, and if you're at target, I can actually kind of sympathize with target corporations trying to say, you know, maybe we should pull back a little bit for the safety of our employees Like in these red states like Florida, where they pass constitutional carry, where you can have no background check, open
2: carry. People can come into these stores and menace people. Yeah, and, and the thing is, it is brown shirtism, Stephanie. They're literally—they want an army of angry people who, like you know, as Tim said, some of them are armed that can go in these things and menace people. But the other pieces—I grew up; my father was, was loved Reagan. The, the whole principle used to be small government and pro-business. But what they're now saying is that they want to micromanage the trillions of dollars it would cost to micromanage ninety thousand public schools from the from the White House to, my, to manage six thousand thousand public universities from the White House. It doesn't make sense, because Ron DeSantis cannot manage all of those things from Washington, but he says that's what he's going to do.
9: Joy, it's not even fact-based. What you said about Walmart before couldn't be truer, right? People are bragging, saying, look at Bud Light, numbers are down, people aren't drinking it. They've moved over to Coors Light. Well, guess what? The Coors company supports the LGBTQ plus community just like Anheuser-Busch does, just like Target does. And while they may be pulling some items from some stores, they're not backing off from these initiatives because they want younger people to work in their stores. They want younger people to purchase products from their stores. None of this makes sense, but I would say a dangerous thing that you should be concerned of— what these small groups are ultimately looking to do, they now wanna sue these companies. They wanna sue these companies if they have any sort of DEI initiative at all. If there's an affinity group in that company, that's what they ultimately wanna go for. It's that mindset of like, no white man in America can get promoted because the only <laughs> people who can get promoted are African-American women. Newsflash, look at the amount of white men who are named Mark, Richard, or Steve running companies, and there's a whole lot more of those three names than Than there are black women running anything in corporate America. So all of this is based on nonsense, but dangerous nonsense that CEOs and businesses big and small are now having to contend with.
2: But let me just put up this list. Oh, yeah, black women, we're just so running the whole world. Yeah, give me a break. Um, Domino's, Dunkin' Donuts, Wendy's, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Dockers, Yankee Candle. I could go on. These, All of these companies celebrate Pride Month. Tim, last question to you. What happened to small government conservatism? When did republicanism become about micromanaging business and telling businesses how to operate?
5: This is an important point, and just uh, quickly, we could do a whole hour on it. But, but the Republican Party used to be a coalition between economic libertarians and social conservatives, and and in the Trump era, the Republican Party has decided they can attract new, uh, conser- you know, uh, culturally conservative people by getting rid of the economic free mar- pro market stuff and by becoming essentially authoritarian on economic issues, and, and and this is where the party is going. It's what Trump started. DeSantis is following it, and the whole coalition is changing from what you know, we call the classical liberal coalition in, in the Reagan years.
2: They want to run companies. What do you got on your show tonight? Uh, what do you got on Miss Stephanie Rule? What's happening tonight?
9: We're going to dig into this, and we're actually going to talk about no labels, raising all of this money for exactly the people you're talking about who are saying they don't subscribe to this new flavor of republicanism. The problem yeah. is the Republican base does. And while yeah. no labels can raise a whole lot of money from a lot of rich people, are they going yep. to actually result in getting anything done?
2: Nope. Nope. Stephanie Rule, Tim Miller, thank you both very much. Be sure to join Steph tonight on her show, The 11th Hour. That's tonight's readout.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.